Hello and thank you for joining for episode number 141 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we're going to hear from Sir Noel Malcolm, fellow at All Souls College, University of Oxford and the author of Useful Enemies, Islam and the Ottoman Empire in Western Political Thought, 1450-1750, which is published by Oxford University Press. In it, Noel Malcolm explores the obsession, fear and distrust, but also fascination and even admiration with which European writers viewed the Ottoman Empire in the early modern period. The book is a formidable work of scholarship showing how various ideas and fantasies about the Ottoman social and political system projected from the outside became closely intertwined with internal European debates about power, religion, society and war. We'll talk about all of that later on, but before we get on with the interview, let me just remind you to visit our new website, our new URL, turkeybooktalk.com. That's where you'll be able to find the whole archive of episodes going right back to 2015. Also remember that if you like what we're doing, you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount deal of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members who get a special code to use at the online checkout. That deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Turkey Book Talk members also receive transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published and you get transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extra ones not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Sir Noel Malcolm. We started by talking about the importance of 1453, the conquest of Constantinople or Istanbul, a deeply symbolic moment. I asked him to describe the context in Europe at the time the conquest occurred and how 1453 resonated in subsequent years. Well, the context in Western Europe was one of a general background of hostility to the Byzantine Empire, or to the Byzantine Emperor and his church, because of what had happened only a short time before, 1439, when representatives of the Orthodox Church had come to Florence for a big conference between the Western and Eastern churches, and had initialed an agreement to settle their differences and to essentially join the Roman Church, acknowledging the, the Pope, while keeping many of their own distinctive liturgies and ceremonies and so on. And this had been thought to be a tremendous triumph for the West, to bring these people on board. But when they came back to Byzantium, Constantinople, there was a huge reaction against this, and so they never took it any further. And so the attitudes then of the Western powers, that were all obviously Catholic, we're talking about 
almost 100 years before the Reformation, their attitude to the Byzantine emperor was pretty hostile. And this is an important part of the background of the conquest of Constantinople by Mehmed II, because desperate appeals to the West for military help received very little response. So when Constantinople does finally fall after this tremendous military campaign, and let's not forget, although the actual army defending Constantinople was pretty thin, those massive fortifications were still a problem for any attacker, and probably no army in Western Europe could have managed to, to conquer that city but the Ottomans did. When it fell, there was a strong feeling of bad conscience in the West. They just never thought that would happen. And of course, some of them, the theologians, started blaming the Greeks and saying, oh, well, this is God's punishment because they didn't fully sign up to that agreement to join our church. But the worries and fears went further than that, I think for two reasons. One was symbolic. This was a great historic city. It had been the, the capital of the Eastern Empire. It had been a, a sort of beacon of Christian civilization in the Eastern Mediterranean world. It was founded by Constantine, bore his name, and he was the first emperor to favor Christianity throughout the Roman Empire and so on. So you know that was important in symbolic terms. But the other reason was really strategic. Until that moment, the rather limited clashes between the Western Christian powers and the Ottomans, the main ones that involved Western attacks on the Ottomans, but suddenly they realized, no, it's no longer a case of us attacking them. It's going to be from now on the other way around. It'll be the Ottomans moving further westwards, and we will be on the defensive. And so when you put all those things together, the bad faith, feeling of guilty conscience, the symbolic blow, this loss of a, of a sort of pillar of Christendom historically, and the strategic fear, you get an idea of just how shaken people in the West were. Looking forward in the future, the, uh, the offensive campaigns would be launched in the opposite direction by the Ottoman Sultan against Catholic Europe. So there was this dawning realisation that despite the almost schadenfreude that was sensed by some with the conquest, going forward, there'd be a military reality that um, was uh, a lot more concerning for many European states. And this made various Western thinkers and rulers suddenly fearful that they were now on the defensive. And there was a, a fundamental shift of, in the balance of power that had taken place or, as you say in the book, had become impossible to ignore? Yes, I say had become impossible to ignore, because in a sense that shift had already happened. You know, people still had this idea the fall of Constantinople in 1453 was the moment when the Ottomans suddenly arrived and everything changed. But of course, you know, that's obviously not true, because for a century before that, the Ottomans had been active in Europe on the western side of the Bosphorus, making large inroads into the Balkans and actually gradually conquering a large part of what would become their, their European empire. So all of that had, had happened. In strategic terms, in sort of narrow military terms, the conquest of Constantinople was a sort of mopping up operation. Constantinople, this, the, well, this Byzantine empire by that stage was hardly an empire at all in practical terms. So yes, it brought home to people in the West something that they had been somehow ignoring up until that moment. And the people that were now feeling for the first time seriously that they were on the front line were Venice in some ways, but Venice had been trading 
Britain, its lifeblood came from trade in the Eastern Mediterranean, and it was one of the first states to form a new agreement with the Ottomans. The Habsburgs in the, roughly speaking, sort of Austrian territories, who now felt that they were going to be on the front line, and in a more general sense, the, the papacy, the popes who felt responsible for rallying Catholic support from all over Europe. And I think we can accept that was principled and religiously motivated and so on. But at the same time, it was always in the interest of popes to strengthen their own sort of political leadership role for Western Christian powers. And they were obviously also trying to do that. The scourge of God idea that you talk about in the book really struck me. This persistent idea that the Ottoman Empire represented the scourge of God, basically a punishment from God for various perceived sins theological and otherwise. How did this idea emerge and how did it develop over time? Who was it used by and how? Well, initially, the obvious way to use it was to blame the Greeks for having failed to fulfill the initial promise made to the Roman Church. So that was a very easy way to run the argument. They were being punished for their violation of faith and so on, and indeed their schism, because they were schismatics in the eyes of Rome. Funnily enough, there's a comment by the Metropolitan of the Russian Orthodox Church, reaching the same conclusion, but for the opposite reason, saying, they were punished by God because they'd even made the initial agreement to sign up to Rome in the first place. So those were quite easy ways of running the argument. But more generally, you have to think always in this period, or in fact in the whole period up to at least the 18th century, the basic mindset people have is religious. Their idea of history is based on sacred history, which they find in the Bible. Everything is part of God's plan. What we call providentialism is just an absolute default assumption. God's providence is, is planning everything. Everything has a meaning. And if you read the Old Testament again and again, you find that even God's chosen people are chastised and punished by God for their sins, and all sorts of terrible things happen to them because of their sinfulness. So it wasn't difficult to extend this, this whole line of argument to Western Christians themselves. And as the Ottomans do start conquering further territory, further to the West and the Northwest in the Balkans, and of course the, the conquest of Hungary, most of Hungary in 1526 is a really major conquest, it's natural for people to start applying this argument to their case too. And then when you get into the Reformation period, you have Protestants in the German lands saying, well, actually, this is all a punishment for the sinfulness of the Roman church. Even going so far as to saying, well, because these are instruments of God's wrath, we shouldn't even be resisting them because God will not look favorably on any attempts we make until we have purified ourselves of our sins. So it's an argument that fits into basic assumptions that almost any Christian in this period might have had. But in the hands of some religious writers and thinkers, it could be taken in a pretty extreme direction. You refer there briefly to the, the divide between Protestant and Catholic, and that really comes through in the book, how the Ottoman Empire was incorporated into the narratives of both sides, of, essentially. Both sides of this great Christian divide used Islam and what it represented, and the Ottoman Empire and what they thought it represented for their own means, essentially. Could you talk about how they did that? How did the various sides and the various observers interpret this question and incorporate the Ottoman Empire into their armory, essentially, uh, their rhetorical armory? armory against the other side. 
Yes, it's a very interesting topic, I think. It arises in some obvious ways from just the timing of the Reformation and that quite long period after 1517 when Protestantism was, was finding its feet in Central Europe to begin with, but, but often you know, having to defend itself, being quite strongly persecuted in some areas. The fact that this period, let us say the first generation of Protestantism, coincides with an extremely active period of Christian versus Ottoman conflict. Uh, I mentioned the conquest of much of Hungary, the, great, the famous Battle of Mohács in 1526. This was a tremendous blow. The Habsburgs then tried to reconquer Hungary for themselves. Well, I say reconquer, they hadn't properly had it before, but that's another story. All of this is going on in the first 10, 20 years of Protestantism. There's even a siege of Vienna, 1529, when the Ottomans came pretty close to conquering that city. And the Holy Roman Emperor, in effect the sort of ruler of Germany, is trying to extract money and manpower from his various component territories, all the dukedoms and free cities and other territories of, of Germany. And some of these already have turned Protestant and are using the religious issue to block some of his requests, or to put it the other way around, are saying, well, we'll only give you money if you allow us to continue as Protestants and so on. So politically, it's a very sort of sensitive and difficult time. And everyone, all pamphleteers and ideologists and religious thinkers, have this Ottoman dimension in their minds at some point or other. So that's the essential background. And if you are a Catholic pamphleteer writing attacks on these horrible newfangled Protestants, or if you're a Protestant denouncing the Roman Church, you reach for rhetorical materials where you can find them. So it's not surprising that Luther says that the Pope is just like the Sultan, or turn the page and he's saying the Pope is just like Muhammad, tyrannical, sinful, and so on. And you get Protestants being attacked by Catholics. Oh, they are destroying monasteries and nunneries. And this is just like the Ottomans, the dreaded Turks, when they conquer a city, they will rape the nuns in their nunneries and so on. So a lot of heated rhetoric there. But gradually, the sort of cleverer propagandists on each side begin to fish out more specifically religious or theological points and build up a sort of strange portrait of the other side in their religious debate in Muslim terms. And this is, on some points, quite obvious and easy to do. So Protestants are demolishing images in churches because they say it's idolatry. So it's easy for Catholics to say, well, look, the Protestants are just like Muslims because Muslims don't want images. And this shows that deep down Protestantism and Islam are somehow the same. Or Protestants allowed divorce, and they said, oh, well, that's something that goes on in, in, in Muslim territory, but, you know, proper Christians can't do this. And gradually they build up a whole repertoire of points. And similarly, the Protestants start doing it to the Catholics. On a whole range of things, so some of them quite interesting, for example, saying, well, the Catholics don't let people read the Bible in their own local vernacular. And they said, this is just like Muslims who won't allow the Quran to be translated. Or the Catholics have their Inquisition and put people in prison and use force, they said, to sort of make people Catholic. 
And the popular idea about Islam was that it was a religion of the sword. It used violence and coercion in order to make people Muslims. So on point after point, they built up these sort of catalogues of apparent resemblances. And I discuss in the book, I mean, the most impressive work of all by an English theologian, uh, a Catholic who moved to the continent and wrote this book in the late 16th century. It is enormous. It is a folio volume of, I've forgotten exactly, but something like 800 folio pages. And he just builds up the one argument after another, comparing Protestantism to Catholicism. So this was this was the heavy artillery of a certain kind of Protestant Catholic polemics. You mentioned him just a second ago. Martin Luther had a very interesting and uh, original perspective on Islam and also the Ottoman Empire. Could you just dwell a bit on his view uh, as expressed in his work? Well, he is a very interesting case. I mean, obviously, he's hugely influential all through his lifetime after the famous theses of 1517, he, you know, people hang on his every word, and he's prolific, he's publishing pamphlets, sermons all the time. But he undergoes an, a very interesting development in his thinking about this. At the beginning, he takes that scourge of God argument very seriously, and he says, well, this is God's will, we can't resist, there's no point in trying to resist these people until we have purified ourselves, and that means dropping all these false Catholic practices and reconciling ourselves to God and so on and so forth. And so he's adopting what we would call pretty much a pacifist line, for which he is attacked even more fiercely by the Catholics, who think, well, this makes him a sort of de facto ally of the Sultan. And then something changes around 1529, and that's, as I mentioned, that's the time of the siege of Vienna, the first Ottoman siege of Vienna. And this is really bringing it home. Uh, you know, it's no longer distant things happening on Hungarian battlefields. This could really affect the German lands if the Ottomans win. And something changes in his whole attitude. And he may be influenced by a couple of friends of his, his, his great sort of right-hand man, Melanchthon, and a less famous theologian called Justus Jonas. They are looking at the biblical prophecies, the book of Revelation, but particularly the prophecy in the book of Daniel. And they think that they have identified Islam and perhaps the Ottoman Empire too in the description of the sort of monstrous beast that emerges in the vision of Daniel. And suddenly things change in Luther's mind. And he thinks, well, we can't just take this this line that, well, it's nothing to do with us. It's, it's, it's sort of God's punishment and we must just change ourselves. What it is, is a manifestation of the devil, and every Christian has a duty to fight against the devil. So suddenly he's able to reconfigure his argument and say, well, it is the duty of a Christian man, if necessary, to arm himself and follow his, his king into battle, because this is a diabolical religion. And that sets up a much stronger tradition of, of sort of anti-Muslim thinking and feeling uh, in the German lands, which lasts a very long time. The book also mentions Pope Pius II, rather earlier actually than Martin Luther, he delivered uh, a number of fiery anti-Ottoman speeches in the mid-15th century, and his writings helped to develop a new consciousness of Europe as a social and political entity, as you describe it. And this really cultivated the, the notion of Europe as a ethno-cultural as well as a geographical entity, this idea of the Ottoman other, essentially, uh, that could be used to define Europe against how significant was Pope Pius II? 
Well, he was a very significant figure. He was one of the most impressive sort of humanist intellectuals ever to become Pope. He was intellectually a very dynamic figure, very active. He'd been a very important sort of thinker and speechwriter and so on uh, before he became Pope. His actual achievement against the Ottomans as Pope was pretty unsuccessful. He called for a new crusade and so on, but he didn't have a lot of success with that. People eventually came, gathered a small force uh, in order to get into boats on the Italian coast, and everything went wrong, and he turned up ill, and he actually died, and this army melted away. But as you say, intellectually, he did have an influence. He's often credited with simply sort of inventing this modern concept of Europe, meaning essentially West, what we would call Western Europe, or Western Christendom, but as a sort of cultural, historic, social, political entity of a kind that we would recognize as a description of Europe even today. I try to suggest in the book that it wasn't as simple as that, that, I mean, yes, he used the phrase, which was a classical phrase, Europa, and he draws on classical geographical texts to say, well, it has a sort of identity that's different from Asia. But actually what he meant by it was mainly a theological entity. It was Western Christendom that, that he was really talking about. And then since we're on this topic, in the 1520s and 30s, there's another wave of writing about or invoking this concept of Europe. And again, modern historians have focused on that and said, aha, here we see again the development of the modern concept of Europe, and it's in response to the Ottomans. Well, yes, but it was to a large extent a sort of rhetorical device used by propagandists for the Habsburgs, the Holy Roman Emperor and his brother, and the reason was a pretty simple one. They were fighting in that period against the Ottomans over Hungary. Hungary itself was not Habsburg territory, and it certainly wasn't part of the Holy Roman Empire. So when they appealed to German princes and dukes and so on for men and manpower, the Germans just turned around and said, well, why should we? This is not defending the Holy Roman Empire. That's not our state. It's some adventurism by the Habsburgs for their own political gain. So it was very useful sort of rhetoric to say, oh, but we're defending Europe. And again, the primary meaning seems to have been Western Christendom. But you can see through the works of their, their sort of key propagandists, you can see this term Europe being invoked a lot more in that period to serve an interest on the part of the Habsburgs and to try to generate a more general feeling of identification. And to the extent that that worked, then it is part of the history of the concept of Europe, certainly. But I'm just interested as a historian in how it came about, and I see some, some slightly more nitty-gritty political motives behind it. Now, one example, uh, an early example that cuts against the grain of hostility, really, the hostile narrative in the 16th century was the alliance between France and the Ottoman Empire. This was an alliance struck between the French king, Francois I., and Sultan Suleiman, Suleiman the Magnificent. Could you just describe for us what was the context for this alliance developing and what was unique about it and what was, in fact, scandalous about it for many? Yes, certainly. Well, I've mentioned the Habsburgs, and I've so far been talking essentially about the Holy Roman Empire, i.e. the German lands and some other neighbouring territories, plus rule over the Austrian lands, which were the sort of more ancestral lands of the Habsburgs. But I'm very conscious of the fact that in this period, the early 16th century, when one says Habsburg, it, it also involves Spain and other territories that were controlled by Spain, much of southern Italy, the kingdom 
of Naples, Kingdom of Sicily. So Charles V, the great Habsburg emperor, actually controlled all of these things. And you've only got to think of the map of Europe, and you realize that France is pig in the middle. And this is a period of European history when warfare between neighbors is so common simply to seize an opportunity, to gain a bit more territory, to strike a blow. And so there, over time, there are many conflicts between France and its Habsburg neighbors on both sides. Now, when Charles V sort of withdraws from his rule, he makes a, a long-term decision to separate the two halves of the Habsburg dominions. So the German side and the Spanish side are then under separate rule. But still, they're Habsburgs, they're cousins or whatever who, who rule there. And France still feels essentially trapped between two very powerful allied powers. So to come back to your question, Francois I of France has various conflicts with the Habsburgs, with Charles V, when Charles V controls all of this territory. And he has a big conflict with him, particularly about northern Italy, where France has its own territorial interests. And in 1525, he's disastrously defeated by Charles V at the Battle of Pavia and actually taken prisoner. And it's his mother who sends an envoy to the Ottoman Sultan saying, essentially, please, can you help? And saying, we are standing out against these Habsburgs, but if we are completely crushed by them, then you'll be next because they seek world dominion. So it's a nice reversal of all that European rhetoric about how the dreaded Ottomans were seeking world dominion. And over time, one senses a certain a sort of strange symmetry between what people said about the Ottomans and what they said about the Habsburgs. When Francois gets out of prison, he follows up this line of strategy, and by the 1530s, he's really interested. He sends an ambassador to Istanbul, and a real de facto alliance develops between France and the Ottoman sultans on the age-old principle, my enemy's enemy is my friend. So France is the first Western power to have a full sort of embassy in Istanbul, and in the 1540s, there's even a military alliance, the big North African African Corsair fleet, which is now serving the Ottomans under the famous Corsair captain Barbarossa, Hayreddin Barbarossa, is actually brought to France in a joint campaign against the Duke of Savoy and the territory of Nice, which was sort of Habsburg protégé territory. And the entire, this is essentially the Ottoman navy at this time, spends the winter at the French port of Toulon in 1543. And Europe is scandalized. How is it possible, you know, to hear the call to prayer from a muezzin in a Western Christian city? But that happened. And then Barbarossa in the next year took his fleet down the coast of Italy and seized hundreds of people as slaves. So France was now in the spotlight as having done something really extraordinary, a sort of an open military alliance with this Muslim power that was regarded as the enemy of Europe, in inverted commas, the enemy of Western Christendom. But it was dictated by the logic of the situation, and on and off, this position of either de facto or even sort of quite formal alliance with the Ottomans, on and off it continues and resurfaces several times even in the following century. And the Franco-Ottoman alliance also led to a new cultural exchange. So, for example, many French writers went to Constantinople, Istanbul in the 16th century, and they produced among the first and fairly neutral first-hand accounts of Europeans in the Ottoman Empire. What was significant about these productions and what did they say? 
Well, I have a whole chapter on this in the book because as I worked on this, all this material, it gradually became clear to me that this is a real turning point in Western thinking about the Ottomans generally. From the 1540s, as you say, prompted by this alliance, there's a succession of French writers. Some of them are diplomats who happen to write something. Some of them are sort of intellectual scholars. One is a serious Orientalist who goes to the Levant, as it was generally called, in order to improve his knowledge of Arabic and to learn Turkish. That's the, the, the great French Orientalist, Postel, Guillaume Postel. There's a succession of these writers, and for the first time, really, you get a whole group of people developing a sort of genre of writing, which is relatively objective description of this, in some ways, alien culture and society. In other words, they're not propagandists writing hostile tracts in order to energize people to give money or soldiers to fight against the Ottomans, and a lot of the previous writing had been like that. And some of these people are quite observant, and they travel, and they write about what they've seen. Mixed in with this, in terms of the sort of change in mentality in the West towards the Ottomans, there are some other texts that weren't produced by Frenchmen, weren't produced by diplomats or travellers. There's a whole group of narratives by people who'd been captives of the Ottomans, often captured in war, and had spent time, you know, had lived for years inside the Ottoman Empire, and for one way, reason or another had got out and wrote accounts of life there on their return. Now, they were obviously generally very negative and sort of hostile in their attitude to Ottoman power, but at the same time, they wrote quite detailed descriptions of conditions of life, and nobody could accuse them of writing propaganda when they said something relatively positive about the conditions of life. But again, they were writing surprisingly objective stuff, and some of it was positive. And there was a whole series of points that came together in these two groups of writings, and together, something that I've called the new paradigm began to emerge, because there was a sort of consistent picture here, which wasn't of this diabolical power, it wasn't of people living under terror and so on, it was actually of a well-ordered system of society and government, on a whole range of points. I mean, the obvious one, the extraordinary order, everyone noticed that about the Ottoman military, but people commented on it in Ottoman towns, where you could walk safely in the streets at night, in, in the heartlands, at least the Ottoman Empire, you could travel as a merchant and not be robbed on the roads. This sounds pretty elementary to us, but don't forget, people in Western societies at this time had nothing like what we would call a police force, and to have this degree of public order was considered extraordinary. They commented on the justice system, which was quick and seemed generally quite fair, but the speed of it impressed them so much because there were these terrible long drawn out legal processes in Western societies that would bankrupt people. And they thought, well, how wonderful to have rapid decisions by a cardi. You just go to him on one day, you explain the case, and the next day you come back and you're given the judgment. This is so much better. Then a much more structural principle of society that really impressed some people, but it shocked others, was what we might call meritocracy. The idea that you could start as a shepherd boy and end up as a grand vizier just seemed extraordinary. Most of these people came from feudal societies. To them, it was almost shocking 
how could a, a society like the Ottoman one be so successful and apparently so stable without a hereditary nobility? But it was, and this set them thinking, and perhaps they thought some of them commented on this at an early stage, well, this is part of the, the secret of their military success. They just promote commanders on merit, on skill, and not because their father is the Duke of something or other. So there's a whole range of things there. There's another topic which, of course, interests people in the 16th century, and that is religious toleration. The relative toleration of the Ottoman system towards Christians and Jews was often much better than what a Protestant could expect in Catholic territory or vice versa, or indeed than what Jews could expect almost anywhere in, in Christian territory at that time. So that again gets commented on. Putting these and other points together, you begin to build up a coherent picture that is surprisingly positive, and that's what I've called the new paradigm. I'm not suggesting that it immediately replaced the old negative paradigm, but it offered a new way of analysing this whole system of government and rule, and, and lots of people started thinking seriously about them. Now, what about this idea of oriental despotism? You address this in the second part of the book. The Ottoman Empire came to be seen as one of the key examples demonstrating this concept, rather negative concept, uh, but it became very widespread and applied in a number of different contexts. Could you just trace the origins and development of this idea of oriental despotism for us and how it was used by various figures? Yes. I mean, this is one of the, the sort of key elements in the book. And if I'm allowed one little boast, I think I've offered for the first time a really coherent account of exactly how, why, and when this concept really began to be applied and how the whole notion of Oriental despotism arose. It arose in the 1580s, 1590s, on the basis of some much earlier comments in the 16th century by a few writers. But it has a very particular history, and I'll just try to summarize it briefly. So for most people, if you liked a monarchy, you called it a monarchy. And if you didn't like it, you called it a tyranny. And medieval political theory had given you lots of criteria to distinguish the one from the other, going back to classical writers. And there didn't seem to be much need to talk about a third category, despotism, which was different from just ordinary tyranny. But some writers in the 1530s, and the interesting one here, I mentioned earlier, the, the right-hand man to Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, who was a, a, a great intellectual, by the way. He was interested in Aristotle, he wrote a commentary on Aristotle's politics, and he fished out this term despot from Aristotle as a sort of third category, and a third category for a certain kind of rule over people who were not somehow competent to rule themselves. So it was mostly in the interest of the ruler, it treated the people as slaves, but they accepted it because they weren't really capable of ruling themselves, and it provided a sort of stability. And this was the original concept of despotism, it goes back to Aristotle, the Greek word despotes means the master of a household that includes ruling over your, not just your family, but your slaves. Now, in the 1530s, when those propagandists for the Habsburgs were writing, the whole picture of Ottoman life was this caricature of something totally negative and monstrous, and the whole population reduced to slavery. That was one of the propaganda lines. So this got thrown into the mix of anti-Ottoman writing then. But then, as I've said, 10, 20 years later, you get the development of what I've called the new paradigm. And this is something completely different. This is a much more positive view. And it really begins to gain traction in the way everybody thinks about the Ottoman Empire in Western Europe. The backlash against that comes in the 1580s and 90s. 
And this is when this concept of despotism is revived in the most negative sense. And the clever move, and my little boast here is that I think I've explained this properly for the first time. Nobody's really sort of seen how this happened before. The clever move is that one or two writers in the 1580s and 90s looked at this new paradigm. They realized it rested on a mass of evidence, detailed descriptions and books by people who traveled around the Ottoman Empire or spent years living there. So they couldn't just say, oh, no, that can't be true. But they found a clever way of turning it all upside down as a description. So the basic facts were not contested, but the interpretation of them was completely switched from positive to negative. So, for example, that marvellous public order that had impressed people, they said, well, yes, there's public order, but only because people are absolutely terrified by barbaric punishment. So they're living in terror the whole time. And so, of course, you don't get robbed in the street because that robber knows that he would then be impaled. Or they looked at the meritocracy and they said, well, this may look very positive to you, but in fact, it's a sign of something terribly negative, which is that they have eliminated the true natural hierarchy in society. They've killed all the noblemen and confiscated their, their lands, and they've reduced everybody to the same level of sort of groveling equally in the dust. So that's your so-called meritocracy. The rapid justice, oh, that isn't justice at all. It's just the whim of these people who, at the behest of the sultan, will just argue say, well, you're guilty, you're innocent, and so on. So, you know, this is the opposite of true justice. So they went through the description point by point. The clever thing was that they said, it is a system, we agree there's a paradigm here, it all sort of hangs together as a kind of system, but it's a totally negative system of rule, of a kind that we are not familiar with in our normal categories. We need a different category to describe it, and we're going to call it despotism. So that was the big change. And so from the last decades of the 16th century, you have this concept of the sultan as a despot. And then people start developing this whole idea of despotism. And it carries on in one form or another, certainly to the 19th century. And people are still talking about oriental despotism down to, um, well, maybe even the 20th. Edward Said is a figure who may be looming in some people's minds as they listen to this conversation. Of course, uh, he was a writer of uh, Orientalism and someone who talked about how European scholars have, he argued, misinterpreted the East in a pernicious way throughout history with very negative political effects for the subjects. Uh, so, of course, the subject of your book is very salient in this context. And you refer to Said at the end of the book, essentially staking out your disagreements with him. Could you just uh, sketch out those disagreements for us here? Yes, I, as you say, it's only right at the end of the book, uh, in the last two or three pages, I just discussed Said and his Orientalist theory briefly. To be honest, up until that last moment, I had thought I would write the whole book without even mentioning him. I didn't want to get into polemics and, uh, you know, he has his followers and he has his attackers. And there's a rather familiar and by now slightly tired body of two-way polemics on this. And I thought, Oh, for a simple life, it might be a lot better just not to mention. But then I felt it would be a bit of a cop-out, because as you say, many readers would have had Saeed hovering at the back of their mind at some point or other, and it might seem strange not to mention him. Now, the famous book, Orientalism, 1978, I think, 
as a work of historical analysis, is only really concerned with the 19th and 20th centuries. I mean, his starting point, roughly speaking, is Napoleon's expedition to Egypt, 1798. However, as he sets out his argument that Western thinking about the Orient, in inverted commas, though he's mostly talking about the, the Islamic world, that Western thinking is, by its nature, an expression of a sort of power interest that is colonialist and imperialist, and that the organization of knowledge was somehow subordinated to those ideological stroke political interests. His argument is generalized beyond just the 19th and 20th centuries. And when he introduces it in rather general terms, he makes it sound as if it was true from the Middle Ages onwards. And he mentions once or twice the period that I'm writing about, the so-called early modern period. Although he only gives one specific example of an actual writer, and that's a rather brilliant French Orientalist scholar of the very late 17th century called Derbelot, Bartholomé Derbelot, uh, who wrote a sort of encyclopedia of the Orient based on extraordinary researches in manuscripts in Arabic, Turkish, and Persian. And he dismisses Delblow as some sort of Orientalist hack who was just exercising these ideological tactics against, against the Orient in order to master it and dominate it and so on. And this, if I may say so, is just completely silly about Delblow. I mean, it's, it's just, it hardly merits discussion. There is serious modern scholarship on Delblow and uh, th this is not serious comment on him. But the larger argument, if it's to be applied to my period, I think is so obviously wrong. I don't think it's completely obviously wrong about the 19th and 20th centuries. I mean, when West European powers have major colonial or imperial interests in large parts of the Orient and in inverted commas, including Muslim territories, it's not absurd to say that some of the production of knowledge by scholars and so on was obviously influenced by that context. And some of it sometimes may have been rather brazenly political. So those are all points worth making, although as a general argument, even about the 19th and 20th centuries, I don't think it stands up very well. He completely ignores German scholarship about the Orient, and Germany was an absolute powerhouse of Orientalist scholarship in that period, and it's just awkward for his argument, because Germany was not at that time a colonial power over Muslim territory. But anyway, that's just a side comment. To come back to my period, it doesn't work. It really doesn't work. I mean, what Muslim territories were these Western powers trying to colonize or control? It's almost nothing. I mean, briefly, the British had Tangier, came in the dowry of Catherine of Braganza for Charles II. I mean, that's a pinprick on the, the coast of Africa. It's only really in the second half of the 18th century with the, 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 the sort of Muslim parts of what became colonized, imperialized territories of India. It's only then that you get really major Western rule over a Muslim population. For much of my period, you know, the boot was on the other foot. and There were more West Europeans being captured by Muslims in the Mediterranean and turned into slaves in northern Africa and Istanbul in some periods than the other way around. But above all, and here I, I come back to the sort of central argument of my book, to suggest that there was just sort of one simple ideological purpose that all Western writings about the Ottoman world or the Muslim world, that they were all serving, is so limited and so narrow. One of the things, the fundamental things I'm trying to do in this book is to show that people could use what they knew or thought they knew about the Ottoman Muslim world in so many different ways. And they could use it sometimes very positively, praising it, sometimes very negatively. 
often as ammunition in what was really an intra-Western debate, and not ultimately in order to praise or defend the Ottoman reality as they saw it. And that's why the title of the book is Useful Enemies. They saw these Ottomans as, as enemies, of course, for most of this period, but they were putting them to use in all sorts of other arguments. So I just felt I had to say something along those lines. And of course, the only, I think the only sort of, I thought, unpleasantly hostile review I got for this book was from someone who was obviously a, a, a sort of fanatical Saidian. And I had committed blasphemy against, against the master. And I was denounced for failing to recognize that, of course, everything Said said was true. And I just think, well, I've written a quite a long book here, and in almost every page I'm giving examples of things that disprove what Said has, has said. So, well, what can I say? I, I rest my case. That was the Noel Malcolm. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 141. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership pays for things like our new website, turkeybooktalk.com. And membership also gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, you just have to pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter put together by the journalists Razier Akkoc and Diego Cupolo. It's a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com to find out how to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening.